Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, we chat with Luca DeFeo all about the topic of isogenies. But before we start in, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently released Manticore 0.3.3, which includes support for symbolically executing WebAssembly binaries. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you will have heard Frederick mention WASM quite often. WASM, or WebAssembly, is a newly standardized programming language that allows web developers to run code with near-native performance directly within the browser. Manticore 0.3.3 can explore all reachable states in a WASM program and derive the concrete inputs that produce a given state. The goal is to provide a solid foundation for security analysis of WASM programs. More information is covered in their latest blog post entitled Symbolically Executing WebAssembly in Manticore. In general, keep an eye on the Trail of Bits blog for security news and explanation pieces just like this one. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. Now here is our interview with Luca. In this week's episode, we take the podcast in a slightly different direction than we usually do and try to dig into a topic that is pretty deep into cryptography and mathematics. And while there's not snark stuff and zero knowledge proof certainly is, is deep in there as well, uh, this is perhaps a bit of a different flavor of that. So we want to explore the concept of isogenies and uh, to some degree how they relate to VDFs and cryptography and maybe other blockchain related things. We'll see what we get into. But um, we are... We, we actually uh, arrived at this episode because we talked about VDFs in a previous episode wherein I, I said that like the Web3 Foundation has been playing with this idea of isogeny-based VDFs. And uh, Luca, your co-author, I'll intro you in a second, uh, your co-author of the isogeny VDF paper reached out to us to talk more about isogenies. And it's probably the first time that any of the authors of the paper or the, some of the work that we've um, been talking about the podcast has reached out to us. So this is a uh, first and a very exciting thing for me. Um, but um, yeah, we're very excited to welcome an expert on this topic, Luca DeFeo, who's a researcher at IBM Research to the podcast to help us better understand what this thing is. Hi, Frederick. Hi, Anna. Hello. If we just start out basic, what are isogenies? And how do you think we should approach them for this episode? <laughs> Well, that's a question which can be answered in uh, one word or one hour at your choice. Um, probably before saying the word isogeny, I should say the word the elliptic curve. I assume most of your um, audience knows about elliptic curves a little bit. They know it's used in uh, public key uh, encryption and uh, public key signatures. Isogenies are a concept related to elliptic curves, and so the one-word definition of isogenies is just that they are morphisms of elliptic curves. So I guess that morphism is not a word that is uh, used very much in this podcast, so I will try to give a slightly longer definition. So a morphism is just a function, which means that in a, in isogeny is a function from an elliptic curve to another elliptic curve, which maps points to points. But on top of that, you also require this function to be something that is called a group morphism, which means that it is compatible with the group law of analytic curve, which basically means that isogenies of A plus isogeny of B is equal to isogeny of A plus B. And that's it. Something I found really interesting looking at that Wikipedia page is it, it has this uh, phrase, quote, the term isomorphism was sometimes confusingly used for what is now called an isogeny, and uh, it kind of, as you said, like morphism is probably not a super common term, but actually like isomorphism is, is something that programmers talk increasingly about. I come from the Haskell world where lots of people talk about isomorphisms all the time in like category theory. Um, but it's even like started to be a thing that you talk about isomorphic web applications, just main, basically meaning that a web app who that's 
whose code can run both on the server and in the client, and like you can use the same code base everywhere. Um, I just thought it was funny to like link these things together because I think people have some basic understanding of isomorphism. So how does what what is a morphism when you remove iso? <laughs> um, isomorphism. Well, all these words come from Greek, of course. Uh, morphisms, mor morphe, morphe means form, and morphism is something that preserves some form. So it's a function that is keeping preserving some structure. And when you add the prefix iso, you mean that the structure is being preserved in a one-to-one -one way, like in a bijection. Maybe this word is more common. Um, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned that I've wrote, we wrote that in the paper because I completely forgot that. But yeah, truth is that uh, isogenies, uh, isogeny is a very recent word. It was invented in the 40s by André Veil, Veil, I guess, he's French. Um, and um, before uh, the 40s, there was, there was um, a confusion between isogenies, isomorphisms. Uh, nowadays, in modern uh, terminology, an isomorphism is a special kind of isogeny. So uh, to be precise, isomorphisms of LET curves are just isogenies of degree one. That's the definition nowadays. But at the end of the 20th century, at the beginning of, uh, sorry, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of 20th century, people were more looking into the geometry of LET curves over the complex numbers, where uh, it felt natural to call uh, isomorphism this concept. And then only in the beginning of the 20th century and uh, coming to the 30s, people started to look at more algebraically. And then they really wanted to make this distinction between isogenies and isomorphisms, which was in the end written down by, uh, by Veil. So isogeny is a very strange word, which is uh, very uncommon. I don't think there's any other uh, object in mathematics that has such a strange name. Um, it would definitely be make sense to just call them morphisms of elliptic curves, but actually I like that there is this very special word because I would say morphism-based cryptography doesn't sound good, but isogeny-based <laughs> cryptography is, is a nice word. I've, I've been talking to a few people about isogenies in the lead up to this episode to try to get some sense of it. And I actually heard morphism defined as a map that preserves a property and not necessarily as a function. Is that also correct? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I use the words map and function uh, in more or less in meaning the same. Uh, in some textbooks, you could have a different meaning for function and map, but definitely not in this podcast. Got it. And is the... I also understood that it's this algebraic, I think you just said this, the algebraic property is what defines the iso, the is, the isogeny version, mm -hmm. right? Okay, just checking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we say algebraic, what we really mean is polynomials. Okay. Like you can think of polynomials like x cubed plus three, that's a polynomial. Algebraic just means that somewhere in your structure, there's something that's defined by polynomials. Cool. So the, Anna just mentioned that this morphisms you know, preserve some property, and and I think it's valid to ask the question of like what properties do they preserve? There's two things that are preserved by this notion of morphism, but one I already said it before: it's that mm. it's a group, and so it preserves the group structure. And the second aspect, the second uh, important thing that is preserved by isogenies is being algebraic varieties. But that does not going to take us anywhere because that's pretty much implicit in the fact that uh, I'm sending elliptic curves to elliptic curves. I think we need to map out somewhat where this concept of isogenies lives, um, sort of what it compares to what it does. When you describe it as a function between a group and a group, mathematically that, I mean, at least for me that I've studied math for many years, it's a pretty simple concept. Mathematically, it's just like, okay, I get that. How the hell does that lead to anything cryptography? Well, to uh, really understand how isogenies are used in crypto, you should forget, at least for a while, that these are functions and uh, kind of zoom out and look from uh, really a miles above perspective. In isogeny-based crypto, we do not just look at two LET curves with one isogeny between them. We really look at lots of LET curves with all the isogenies that link them. 
So we call these objects isogeny graphs because we really do uh, graphs like in uh, graph theory for those who have some background in that, uh, where vertices are elliptic curves and edges are isogenies that link them. Usually you put some constraint on uh, which kind of elliptic curves and which kind of isogenies you want to put in your graph. And then from these structures, uh, we study their algebraic properties, uh, how they are behaved, what's the size of the graphs, what's the connectivity structure of the graph, uh, like how many steps it takes from uh, for getting from one point to the other. And then it's based on the structures that we construct uh, cryptography. So when, when we do crypto, we, we're talking about huge graphs. For example, in Psyche, which is one of the most popular post-quantum candidates, Isogeny graphs are uh, uh, huge. They have uh, something like 2 to the power 400 vertices, 2 to the power 400 elliptic curves. That's 1 trillion more times than uh, the number of atoms in the universe. And there's about as many isogenies, isogenies in total in the graph we consider. So these are really huge uh, graphs. Uh, and the property we use from these graphs is something that's called expansion, which is something that says that these graphs may be huge, but getting from one point to any other point is very quick. Actually, in practice, for Psyche, it can take as few as hundreds of steps uh, to get from any point to any point. So you can picture this as a very strange uh, warped universe where you can go from anywhere to anywhere at light speed, but finding your way out there is immensely complicated. I have sort of a, like I'm taking a step a little bit back isogenies living between kind of the function that bridges between elliptic curves do these in the example you just gave is it like the isogenies create multiple elliptic curves or like i'm kind of curious like which comes first in that scenario the elliptic curve or the isogeny that's probably a very deep mathematical question what comes before <laughs> in mathematics usually you start from axioms and you construct all mathematics uh, and in this sense neither elliptic curves nor isogenies have a priority but uh, someone is going to uh, tell me i'm too platonicist i guess i guess there's a question in there of can you construct a elliptic curve from an isogeny like if you have one curve and an isogeny can you yes you know make a, a new one or uh, do you need both curves to construct the isogeny that's those are very uh, concrete questions which also have an algorithmic content like meaning that you really have data describing an isogeny and you have data describing an elliptic curve can you construct the other elliptic curve the mm -hmm. answer is yes uh, but also you have two elliptic curves and you know that there is an isogeny that's going to connect them, then the answer is also yes, you can construct that isogeny. So from a, uh, an algorithmic, uh, like computational point of view, the answer is either way. Uh, from a mathematical perspective, historically elliptic curves come first, but then uh, modern algebraic geometry came and the point of view of modern algebraic geometry is always to look at the maps first and then at the object. So isogenies would come first. Ah. So it's really a matter of perspective. And uh, I, I would say it's uh, whatever you prefer. In practice, when we do crypto, and so we implement this in uh, computers, you start from an elliptic curve, and then you construct the isogeny, and then you construct the image elliptic curve. I also read somewhere that uh, like f isogenies only go in one direction. So would you need to create, maybe, is this, I don't know if this is correct, but would you have to create two isogenies to connect an, like two elliptic curves both ways? Um, so this is interesting because, uh, sure, an isogeny is a map, so it goes one direction, but uh, there is a theorem, very uh, one of the first theorems you learn when you study isogenies, I was a kid when I learned about it, is the dual isogeny theorem that tells you that whenever you have an isogeny going from A to B, you also have something that's called the dual that goes from B to A. And the composition of these two isogenies, so going from A to B, then back to A, uh, is something very simple. It's a multiplication map. Okay. Your explanation of this this graph is interesting to me because uh, it's, it sounds familiar to a lot of other things that I've heard before. I mean, I directly relate it to like the way that Filecoin, for instance, construct their proofs because they generate these massive graphs, find one particular path, delete all the other data, and then 
it's like impossible to reverse this proof or like forge the proof in in retrospect sort of and um and i, I like from just studying this but beforehand i know there's some relation here to lattices and post-quantum cryptography and all like i kind of see the this graph pattern appearing in general post-quantum discussions as well is there a relation there if so like what is the relation you already mentioned that psyche this this thing that you were talking about is and like a, a good post-quantum candidate um so how do you achieve the the post-quantum properties of isogeny-based crypto? So the foundation of all isogeny-based crypto is always a rooting problem in a graph, uh, meaning that uh, you have two vertices in the graph. You know that there's going to be a path, probably more than one path between them, and your goal is to find this path. And as I was saying, it's very easy to move fast in the graph, Actually, the hard problem is once you forget how you got somewhere, it's very hard to find your way back. So this is the main problem uh, on which all post-quantum isogeny-based protocols are funded because for VDFs, it's, it's a different story. But in the post-quantum space, this is really the main tool we have, this hardness of finding a path between two elliptic curves in an isogeny graph. This is a very uh, different problem when you compare with uh, lattices and code-based crypto, all these other post-quantum candidates. Each of these family has a very different problem of a different nature uh, you need to solve to break using your quantum computer in order to beat the cryptography. So uh, the analogies between isogenies and these other post-quantum candidates come more on the encryption side, where the way you do encryption or the way you do signatures with isogenies is very similar to the way you do with uh, lattices, for example. But on the quantum security level, it's a really uh, unique and I would say beautiful uh, problem, which is given to elite curves, find an isogeny between them. You mentioned that the crypto is based on this hardness of finding that path in the graph so is that then comparable to like in more traditional crypto we rely on the hardness of finding um like two long primes or the discrete log problem is is that like the kind of core of isogeny based crypto i would say it's very similar to the discrete logarithm problem Actually, you can even construct a graph from... So the discrete logarithm problem is in a group, you have some generator G, you put G to the power A, you get some new element, call it H, and then now seeing G and H, your goal is to find this power A you used. And actually, you can construct a graph from the group, and then you can express the discrete logarithm problem as a pathfinding problem in this graph. So th this is really analogous. Uh, you can make like this analogy really um, meaningful for the isogeny based schemes. So now that we've talked about this graph a bit and I, I, I get the fundamental concept a little bit better, I'm actually understanding another thing that I read, which was this key exchange you know, story about people traveling the universe and aliens and things. And uh, <laughs> it, it makes sense now that I know <laughs> this graph theory bit. Um, but that's all like a story to talk about how key exchange can be done in isogenies based crypto. Um, but I mean, we can probably read that whole story here. It's a bit too long, maybe. But what is key exchange? And what relevance does it have? How do you do key exchange in this scenario? Okay. The story you are referring to is something I've wrote for fun a couple of years ago. Uh, and my goal was to be as close as possible to the way Psyche works, which wasn't a noble goal of making things easy to understand. It was more just for the fun. Uh, but I think we can just stay on Earth without going to um, uh, with aliens in uh, space and explain how all these isogeny-based key exchange work without having that complexity. Actually, we can just get down to Manhattan, I think. So, you know, Manhattan, you have uh, all these streets and avenues. It's very nice. It's a lattice, actually. Uh, and uh, so let's say that you want to go from Times Square to the Empire State Building. Makes sense? So what you would do is take uh, the 7th Avenue, 
you would take it south for eight blocks, and then you would go two blocks east on the 34th Street, and there you are at the Empire State. That's one way to do it. But actually, you have a second way to do the same. It is you start from Times Square, you go east for two blocks on the 42nd Street, and then when you reach the 5th Avenue, you go south for eight blocks. And again, you are at the Empire State Building. So this is drawing a square in Manhattan, as you can see. It's either you go first east and then south, or you go first south and then east. And this is the basic building block we like to use in uh, mathematics. Well, mathematician calls these uh, commutative diagrams because you have essentially two ways uh, to get the same result. Now, think of these paths in Manhattan as being isogeny walks. So uh, sequences of isogenies in an isogeny graph. From uh, Times Square, which is an analytic curve, you go east, then maybe you do it more complicated. You go one block east, one block south, three block east, four block south, and then you end up somewhere. And uh, you can do this in many possible ways. And uh, the idea now is that you will distribute this to the two players. So in uh, cryptography, it's usually Alice and Bob. So Alice will uh, do uh, maybe three blocks east and uh, four blocks south. Bob will do uh, four blocks east and nine blocks south. And then uh, they will maybe text each other where their uh, coordinates and then they will exchange positions and restart the same uh, walk they made before. So Alice will do again, what did I say, four blocks east and nine south. And Bob will do the same uh, he did in the first place. And they will end up being in the same uh, intersection, of course. Now, this is essentially what we do in isogeny-based crypto, except that the isogeny graphs are immensely more complicated than uh, Manhattan. Of course, in Manhattan, if you are in Times Square and you want to know how to get to the Empire State Building, you just ask Google and Google will give you the street. But in isogeny graphs, you don't have any Google to give you the, these ways. If the only things you know are the two places, the one where you started and the one where you ended, there is no easy way, at least that's the hardness assumption, there is no easy way to find a path between these two places. But Alice, she knew how to, she got to this place. So she is able to replay a similar walk, which will be again three steps south, four steps north, five steps south, etc. And uh, this way, they, uh, both Alice and Bob can end up uh, finding the same intersection. So this is essentially how all isogeny-based key exchange work. Then there's variance on exactly how you construct the graph, how these uh, walks are uh, performed, how do you encode these walks into, uh, into bits in the end. But yeah, the essential object is a commutative square, uh, something where there, you have two different ways to reach the same elliptic curve using isogenies. And maybe I can add that from this basic building block, of course, you can get encryption that is similar to the way you do Elgamal from uh, Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And you can also get signatures. That's slightly more complicated than in the discrete lock case, but it's also kind of similar. See, that's the part where I get a little bit lost, is that next step where this is then used for encryption. Wait, how, like, where's that part? Is it because it's, like, are you trying, is it one single path that's impossible to find in all of these other paths? Or like, what's, yeah. That, that part isn't clear to me. So the way you get encryption from a key exchange, it's essentially a generic way. You can do it with any key exchange. doesn't have to be discrete lock. doesn't have to be uh, elliptic curves. Uh, doesn't have to be isogenous. You can always do it. And the idea is that in a key exchange, Alice and Bob have symmetric roles where they both publish something and then they end up having a shared secret. In encryption, you will make these roles asymmetric. So maybe Alice has this public data, which is her public key, and her secret is the way she got the public data. So in the isogeny case, the public data would be an elliptic curve and the secret would be the isogeny walk that took to this elliptic curve. Okay. And then Bob would perform a key exchange with this public data of Alice and get some shared secret. And this shared secret will be the encryption key for a symmetric encryption scheme you plug uh, in. And then you use symmetric encryption to do the encryption. Understood. That's where it lives. So actually, this is what really happens for uh, classical encryption from elliptic curves. For example, in TLS, when you do TLS encryption, what's really happening under the hood is that you have an elliptic curve key exchange, and then from that you derive a key, which is then used for symmetric encryption. Another like 
practical question from me is, I mean, I, I sort of see the the path that you would take from this fundamental mathematical property to the graph to key exchange to encryption. I think that path is pretty clear now. But what's still not clear to me, especially like from an engineer's perspective, is how do I construct these graphs? I mean, as you said, there's like two to 400 or something different curves and and, and isogenies. I can't store two to 400 uh, different things on my computer. <laughs> so how do I pick which elliptic curves to go between and how do I know which isogenies exist to be able to go from one point to the other? So you're perfectly right. I'm not going to store the whole two to the power 400 elliptic curves in my memory. That's that's not the goal. You uh, you would have a starting elliptic curve, which is something that's decided once and for all. It's the same as in the Fielman's key exchange, where you have the public parameters, the generator, the group, etc., which are decided once and for all. And uh, in the isogeny case, the starting elliptic curve will be some elliptic curve which has been chosen by us by those who make the standards. Usually we like to start from uh, an, a very simple elliptic curve, which has equation y squared equals x cubed plus x, because we find it nice. Uh, but you could choose other elliptic curves as starting points. So that's the only vertex of the graph which that you know in the beginning. And then uh, from every elliptic curve, there's only a small number of uh, isogenies that you consider starting from that elliptic curve. Uh, usually you will consider three or four isogenies. And then what you do is that you choose one among these two, uh, three, four isogenies at random, and you do one step. And then you keep doing this. So you iterate this. I choose one out of three, one out of three, one out of three. And by doing this, you will do a random walk in this graph. And by doing this random walk, so as we were saying before, you start from the data encoding the elliptic curve. Then you figure the data encoding the isogeny. And that gives you the data encoding the new elliptic curve. You repeat this process. You will discover more and more elliptic curve. But you will never discover the whole to the power 400. That's not the goal. You will do it walk which is going to be a couple of hundred steps in practice for isogeny uh, encryption. And then along this path, you will have discovered elliptic curves. You uh, absolutely trash the, da the data about the elliptic curves you found along the way. You just record how you uh, did this walk. And then your public data is just going to be the end point of this walk. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So my next question then is, how expensive is it to construct these and walk that path of a couple hundred steps? And essentially, like the general question of like, how well does isogeny-based crypto perform compared to other kinds of crypto? There's two answers to that. The first, the commercial answer is uh, uh, reasonable, entirely reasonable. Um, in practice, uh, when you compare with other post-quantum candidates, it's uh, unbearably slow. So to give you an idea to do to perform a walk which is 200 something steps with the current uh, uh, C code running on modern CPUs and uh, vectorized instructions all the possible optimizations you can put at the software level of course it would take a couple of milliseconds uh, like 2 3 4 uh, 2 3 milliseconds which is reasonable for the applications uh, you have in mind like TLS would be reasonable but it's uh, two orders of magnitude slower, even three, possibly three orders of magnitude slower than uh, lattices, for example. Yeah, it, it sounds entirely reasonable to me. When you said unbearably slow, it's like, oh, is this going to take a couple seconds to do? Uh, but a couple of milliseconds is still, yeah, for something like TLS, that's completely acceptable. I guess it starts, you know, becoming a questionable thing once you start getting into doing things like snarks and need to, to do many, many, many of these in, in one round. Entirely. But uh, on the other hand, and that's one of the main commercial points for isogenies, the data you exchange, the public data that Alice, Bob, all the participants send, is uh, very small. It's actually the uh, smallest public data we have among all post-quantum candidates. So although that will be, make for very... Um, uh, slow uh, protocols, advanced protocols like SNARKs, it would also make them very compact, which is probably interesting in, in the blockchain space because if you need this data to live on the blockchain, then it's going to take 
lots of space if you use lattices or even worse code based crypto. Whereas with, with Azogenes, you can uh, be essentially at the same size as RSA encryption. Not as good as LT curves, but like decently sized, which is interesting. Of course, the main uh, blocking point for isogeny is that we do not have efficient isogeny-based signatures, and usually in blockchains, you are more interested in uh, signature as a primitive than in encryption. So next up, we really want to start talking about like how these relate to like some specific blockchain topics that we've maybe covered in the past. But before we do that, there's another word that I would love to define because I see it pop up throughout the literature on this, and that is the word super singular, the, a super singular curve. What is that word and what does it mean? Okay, that's <laughs> that's a funny question. I'm, I don't think any definition I can give you is going to be very enlightening, but I can tell you what it is not. Um, first of all, super singular, that doesn't mean that it is very singular. Uh, okay. Super singular means that these curves are rare. So um, there's... Um, if you fix a finite field, that's usually where we do uh, isogeny-based crypto. If you choose any finite field and you take the algebraic closure of this finite field, okay, probably not everyone is familiar with this concept, but the algebraic closure of a field is the same thing as the complex numbers are to the rational numbers, say. Uh, like, I hope no mathematician is listening at this point, <laughs> but think of it like that. So... Uh, there's uh, infinitely many elliptic curves when you go to the algebraic closure, but there's only finitely many supersingular elliptic curves in total. So that's why we call them supersingular because they are very rare, and they are so rare that it's actually something that's conjectured to be a, a hard problem algorithmically to uh, pick supersingular curves at random. We know a few special supersingularity curves, like the one I mentioned before, y squared equals x cubed plus x. And we know lots of other very special supersingular curves. But then if we want to discover more supersingular curves, the only way we know is to do these isogeny walks. And uh, this is, of course, enough to discover them all because these graphs are very compact, uh, very well connected. So you can get anywhere, as I said. But of course, there's too many of them and you're never going to map all the space. But on the other hand, um, of all the possible elliptic curves that you may find just by taking curves at random, the chance that you end up on a super singular curves are very low. Okay. So this is to explain the name. Now, why is this important for post-quantum crypto? Not that much, actually. You can actually do post-quantum uh, isogeny-based crypto from ordinary elliptic curves. Actually, that was the first proposal for isogeny-based crypto. The only thing we use, uh, the only reason we use super singular curves for is that we do not know how to do efficient isogeny-based cryptography from ordinary curves. For so far, we've only managed to do it with super singular curves because these curves are very special. They have lots of very special properties, which make them very nice to work with. We've sort of, as you described, Frederick, we kind of have done the walk from like, <laughs> I'm going to use that term now too. I know it's used wrong, but anyway, <laughs> uh, we've, we've, done, we've followed the path from defining what they are to this key exchange story and, you know, how that relates to encryption. But how does that, all of this, then relate back to that earlier topic of VDFs? This is sort of where the whole, at least for us, this is where this topic kind of came out of. Now that we're here, I'm actually, I forget <laughs> from that interview how they relate. And I'm super curious, like, how do those two <laughs> things then come together? VDFs, maybe we just redefine it here. Verifiable delay functions. It's like a function with a delay built into it so that there's it, like something will not happen immediately, but will rather will be delayed by a certain amount of time. You can think of it as uh, a single threaded proof of work, something that will take some amount of time, but you can only do it, you know, in a single thread. Doesn't matter if you throw more hardware at yeah. it, it's still going to take that same amount of time. And you can efficiently verify that it was done at the end, like in proof of work. So... <laughs> How the hell does uh, <laughs> isogeny-based crypto play into this? Well, actually, if you want to move to uh, VDFs now, there's some connections, of course, because we still work with these super singular isogeny graphs. But the way isogenies provide this delay property is very different. It actually requires uh, us to uh, be more specific, give more detail on uh, what an isogeny is for a computer, 
and how we compute them. Got it. Maybe we can start there. Which properties of isogenies or which characteristics or what, what part of isogenies do we need to focus in on in the VDF context? So if you recall, when I defined an isogeny, I said that it's a map from elliptic curves to elliptic curve. So the very important thing is that it maps points to points. And when it does this mapping, it also does it by preserving the group structure. So that isogeny of A plus isogeny of B is equal to isogeny of A plus B. Now, if you want to understand why isogenies are useful in uh, delay uh, cryptography, we, we need to understand what it really means to represent an isogeny in, uh, in a computer and what it means to compute the isogeny, compute the image curve of the isogeny and evaluate the isogeny on a point of the elliptic curve. So an isogeny is not so complex an object. It's just a couple of polynomials. It's usually a pair of polynomials or four polynomials. Depends exactly what you want to represent of the isogeny. So you can just think the isogeny as being a polynomial. Think x squared plus three. That's a polynomial. That can be an isogeny. And so that's that really links back to uh, the way you do VDFs. Because if you think of VDFs, there is one important polynomial. Uh, I'm thinking now of group-based VDF, like the Wesolowski or the Pitsack construction. What you use is a group of a known order, and the function you iterate is this x-square function. Of course, x-square is a polynomial. And uh, here, when we do isogeny-based VDFs, we're really using these isogenies in place of this x-square function. Except that now there is no group of unknown order. We are using different properties. But the idea is pretty much the same. Isogenies come with an invariant, which is called the degree, which is very similar to the degree of a polynomial. So the, poly the degree of the polynomial x squared is 2. And we will use isogenies, typically of degree 2, as a delay function. Because like for the polynomial x squared, we conjecture that there is no easy way to do repeated squaring uh, than just doing one squaring after the other. And in the same way for isogenies, we conjecture that there is no easy way to do repeated evaluation of isogenies of degree two, then going through one isogeny at a time, painstakingly, until we get the final result. So when we do delay functions from isogenies, we're really using a chain of isogenies, an isogeny walk in some graph, and we need to encode this isogeny walk. So we will need to know where we started from, which curve we ended up to, but also how we get from one point to the other. So all this information is going to be the encoding of our sequence of isogenies of degree two. And now we are going to uh, take some point on the starting curve. This is going now to be our X point. And then we will pass it through this chain of isogenies. So it's like taking x to x squared to x4 to x power 8, etc. Except that now we're doing point x goes through first isogeny, gets to some elliptic curves, then goes through some second isogeny, gets to some new elliptic curve, etc., etc., etc. So you repeat this operation enough times, and then you get this delay that you conjecture is impossible to compress. You cannot skip steps if oh, you wow. want. You cannot find a shortcut in your isogeny graph that will take your point from start to end in any faster way. Is this then a time delay? Like by delay, we're talking about like time, actually, because of these transitions, because of these jumps. Is it because of a certain amount of time it takes to compute them? Or is it because, is it the actual steps that is the delay? It's pretty much similar to the um, group-based VDFs. You, when you want to decide, when you want to determine how long it would take to evaluate this function, you must measure how long it takes to do one squaring. And for this, you will evaluate all possible algorithms you know to do squarings, and then you will find the best one implemented on the best hardware, and that will be your unit step. And then if your unit step takes one microsecond, and let's say you want to have a delay of one hour, you will do uh, what's 60 times uh, 60 times uh, a million steps to, uh, to get your one hour delay. Okay. So it's pretty much the same for isogenies. You need to estimate using the best algorithms you have uh, how long it takes to evaluate one isogeny of degree two. And then let's say that takes one... Uh, well, more li most likely 100 microseconds. And then you will iterate this millions of times so that you get the delay you were aiming for. Got it. Cool. 
I mean, this is really helpful, actually, to understand how the isogeny VDF delay, like how the D in the VDF is accomplished with these multiple steps and like with them done like to a certain degree or a certain amount to reach a certain time delay. But what is what about the V in the VDF, the verification? Does that also change in an isogeny VDF versus a group of unknown order style VDF? Extremely different. Okay. Actually, that's one of the nice features of uh, isogeny-based VDFs. It is that in uh, group-based VDFs, in uh, whether it's the Veselovsky proof or the Pichsack proof, you need to produce a proof. That means that you have this delay function that is repeated squaring, and this delay function will produce its output. But then next to the output, you will attach a proof which convinces an interactive prover that this uh, this output really is the output you were expecting from the input. In isogeny-based VDFs, you do not need to attach a proof. Actually, the output is self-proving, mm. which is probably not the most important property on Earth. You can probably live very happy with uh, group-based VDFs. Uh, this, uh, producing this proof is not too expensive. It's reasonable. But at least mathematically, it has some beauty in it because just seeing the output proves itself. So this is something that we call perfect soundness in the uh, in technical terms. And uh, the way you you can verify that this is uh, really the output you were expecting is um, maybe a bit uh, expected if you are used to elliptic curve cryptography and related uh, topics. Uh, you use a pairing. Um, so, for example, the Veil pairing, uh, to come back to Andre Veil, this uh, immense father of elliptic curves, isogenies, and all this stuff, so, of course, you heard about pairings because they are a fundamental object that's used throughout all these uh, Starks, Snarks, etc. Actually, the way we got to our VDF uh, was by taking a very well-known uh, pairing-based scheme, which is the Bonilin-Shachem uh, signature scheme, and uh, replacing, uh, so in this Bonilin-Shachem, what you do is that you have some... Uh, point on analytic curve, you have some message you want to sign, you encode this message as a point on the analytic curve too, then you have a secret scalar, you multiply the message by the secret scalar and that's your signature, and then you can use the pairing to verify that the signature on the message checks with the public key. That's how BLS works. And uh, we just realized that isogenies can be used as delay functions. And uh, actually, something that we knew is that isogenies behave a little bit like scalars, actually pretty much like scalars. Um, so we simply took the BLS signature scheme and replaced the scalar with an isogeny, or more precisely, a chain of degree two isogenies, and then used this uh, pairing equation to verify that indeed the output of the delay function is what it should be. So this is all related to the bilinearity of the value pairing or any other pairing actually can be the Tate pairing. And so this bilinearity is this property that uh, it's a little bit like a generalization of multiplication uh, or of um, the determinant of a two by two matrix, if you wish, where you have these two elements, A and B, and you want to compute pairing of A and B. And then if you multiply A by a constant, this constant can be also multiplied in front of B. It doesn't change the result. So pairing of uh, C times A and B is the same thing as pairing of A and C times B. This is how a bilinearity works. And for isogenies, actually, you have the same property where you will put the isogeny in the pairing equation. So it will be pairing of isogeny applied to A and B is equal to pairing of A and, and here the interesting part comes, the dual of the isogeny applied to B. So actually, this is also one of the possible ways to define what this dual isogeny that we mentioned before is. The dual isogeny is the adjoint with respect to the pairing. So all this fancy... Uh, mathematical words, but which really say that essentially an isogeny is behaving like a scalar multiplication for the value pairing. So this is really what we use when we do the verification in the VDF. All you need to do is take the input point, take the output point, use the pairing, 
and check that the value of this pairing is equal to the value of another pairing you'd computed uh, beforehand and you know uh, is going to match. That's really cool. And I guess in a group-based VDF, the proof that you produce is probabilistic, if I recall correctly. And um, that's, I guess, the beauty here is, like you say, probabilistically, you know, the probability that that proof is incorrect is so low that for all practical matters, it doesn't matter. Like no one should care about whether that's probabilistic or not. Mathematically, it's really nice it's and pretty to not have it probabilistic at all. It's absolute. It's better than that. Actually, uh, there is no probability of uh, the proof being false. If the proof checks, you know that the output is right. If it doesn't, you know that the output is wrong. Huh. But don't get too excited. Uh, I mean, the a probabilistic proof with a, an exponentially small failure probability is perfectly fine for any kind of cryptography. So this is a neat mathematical property, but is not the game changer. Yeah, yeah. So I, the one question that I had, and I don't know if, like, it hasn't really come up yet, I don't think, but it's this idea of isogenies having something to do with, like, randomness generation. Is there a connection there? So there's many different answers to that. On some level, any VDF can be used to generate uh, distributed randomness. Uh, I think this was already um, uh, described in the episode you had with uh, Bono on the VDF, where he exactly made that example of using uh, uh, a, um, a VDF to, uh, to have a distributed generation of randomness. So in that sense, if you have a VDF, you can generate randomness. Another way isogenies are related to randomness is uh, this fact that isogeny graphs are expanders and uh, that being an expander is really a probabilistic definition, which uh, in, probabilistic, in probabilistic terms means that when you do a random walk in the isogeny graph, the end point of the random walk very quickly converges to the uniform distribution. Expander graphs have already been used in theoretical works on randomness generation, so you could want to use those uh, particular isogeny-based expander graphs for uh, randomness generation. But probably that's not a very good idea because it would be very slow compared to other expander graphs we know. Got it. Something I've st we I've actually been trying to do this with a few of the last episodes. That's like bring in some questions from outside through conversations that we've been having maybe around some of these topics. So I have two questions from uh, Tarun Shitra, who's been on the show a couple times, and I've mentioned some of his work a couple times as well. Uh, he had two questions that I wanted to ask you. One is, will these signatures ever be practical? And the second is, do you need custom hardware to speed them up? Okay, I'll start with the first one, signatures. I hope so. <laughs> There's, okay, I, I'm gonna, I guess, break the news, but there's a new paper coming out pretty soon that's going to present a new signature scheme based on isogenies uh, that's going to be the best uh, so far from some points of view. Still not going to be your favorite signature scheme, I am afraid. It has lots of nasty properties, so it's um, we're not there yet. But um, hope someday, yes. Um, we, we know why it is so difficult to make uh, good isogeny-based signature schemes, because we've always been thinking of isogenies as being a generalization of a uh, discrete log, but a much more constrained one. And uh, so all the nice properties of discrete log, which uh, enabled uh, signature schemes like Shor, don't work for... Uh, sorry. <laughs> I mispronounced the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all the nice properties of discrete logarithms that make for good signature schemes like Schnorr uh, don't uh, transfer to isogenies. So this is really what's blocking us at this point. But there is no fundamental reason why you shouldn't be able to do it. It just seems to be very difficult. We need to understand better and learn more about isogenies to do good uh, signatures. But yeah, I'm afraid not in the next year. Sorry. When is that, that paper you just mentioned? When do you think that might come out, roughly? A couple of weeks, 
if we buckle up. <laughs> okay, well, it's possible that this airs actually when it's out. So if so, we'll add a, a link in the show notes. And even if not, I'll add it to the show notes once the paper comes out. So if people listen to this in the future, they can hopefully find it. And so what about that second question? Do you need, do we need custom hardware to speed these up? Or is that something desirable, actually? <laughs> it depends on the application. You very definitely want custom hardware for VDFs, but that's true for any VDF. You want to design hardware specifically for the operation. And here's where uh, isogeny-based VDFs may be interesting is that, uh, for example, compared to uh, class group-based VDFs, you can essentially reuse the same uh, trusted hardware, uh, um, dedicated hardware you are designing for RSA-based VDF. Because essentially the operation is uh, evaluating a polynomial of degree two, or maybe two polynomials of degree two, modulo a prime P. So this is very similar to computing X squared modulo N. So it's going to be essentially the same kind of hardware, although you can do some specific optimizations because the modulus is going to be a prime, which you can control. So you can choose a prime which you optimize for. Uh, in contrast, in RSA-based VDFs, your modulus is going to be a product of two primes and the decomposition, the decomposition is going to be a secret, so you can't really optimize that. Um, but for other applications, uh, of course, it's going to be interesting to have uh, good hardware. There's people working intensely on having uh, dedicated hardware for implemented uh, Psyche, for example. Um, but you're not going to uh, see that anytime soon in uh, uh, CPUs, for example. Uh, accelerated uh, instructions to do uh, TL uh, TLS isogeny-based key exchange. I don't see that coming anytime soon. But that would, of course, help. Uh, cool. But for some specific applications where you really want to use isogenies because of their short keys, short public keys, and then speed is critical, then you definitely have an interest in, de in developing uh, dedicated hardware. Cool. So for the signature, you mentioned some nasty properties. On one hand, I'm curious what those are, but another thing I'm curious about is, speaking of nasty properties, is trusted setups. It's something that keeps coming up again, and it's something we talked about in the VDF setup as well, where RSA-based ones might have it, or like the class group-based ones don't, and that's why people want to go that direction and try to optimize for that. Uh, so what's the what's the scenario here? Unfortunately, that's one of the nastiest properties of the isogeny-based VDF. You need a trusted setup at the moment for uh, the isogeny VDF. And the reason is pretty similar to uh, the reason why you need a group of unknown order for uh, group-based VDFs. Um, essentially, when I said that your delay function is a long chain of isogenies, this means that your delay function is a very long walk in the isogeny graph. So this very long walk is going to be much longer than the shortest path between your two endpoints. So if someone was able to find the shortest path, then this person could evaluate the delay function much faster. And now here's the catch. Um, if the elliptic curve you start from has some known structure, and to be precise, this known structure is going to be a known endomorphism ring. I'm not going to explain what the endomorphism ring is. Just take it as knowing the endomorphism ring is analogous to knowing the order of the group in the group-based VDF. So if the starting analytic curve has this property, this known structure property, then from the description of the very long walk, you can uh, distillate the description of a much shorter walk. And this way you can break the delay property. So the only way to have a secure isogeny VDF is to, is to start from an elliptic curve of unknown endomorphism ring. And that's where we are uh, at, we have a problem. Uh, we do not know how to do that. The only way we know to generate elliptic curves is either take some very special elliptic curves, y squared equals x cubed plus x. But in that case, we do know the endomorphism ring or start from these curves and do a random walk until we find some random elliptic curve in the uh, graph. But the person who does this random walk finds by this random walk exactly the same information, finds the endomorphism ring of the arrival curve. So whoever is performing this random walk is going to uh, break this unknown uh, endomorphism assumption. 
So we need a trusted third party to perform this random walk to some random Schrodinger curve in the graph and then forget about this walk and provide this publicly random uh, elliptic curve to anyone. Now, um, this is not uh, a fundamental necessity on some level. We do not see any reason why it should be so. This is unlike the RSA-based uh, VDF, where it's clear that you want an RSA modulus, and so someone has to generate it. And if someone has to generate it, this someone must be a trusted party. Here, there is no fundamental reason why there shouldn't be a different way to generate elliptic curves that does not give information on the, elliptic, on the endomorphism ring. However, we do not know any algorithm of this sort. So we are still looking for it, and actually that's one of the problems that excites me most at the moment. But for the moment, every effort have failed. And uh, the other uh, thing that must be said in comparison to the RSA-based uh, uh, trusted setup is that in RSA trusted setup, you want to generate this n product of two uh, prime numbers uh, in a distributed way so that you uh, spread the trust over multiple parties. But this is a very complicated protocol. Whereas in isogeny-based VDFs, you can very easily distribute the, the trusted setup in an incremental way, uh, which is uh, something uh, very simple. You have some parties start from the specialty curve and do a walk to some random curve and then publish a zero-knowledge proof that he really did the random walk to this curve. Then some new party can come in and repeat the process by publishing a zero-knowledge proof. And so you can have at any time, any point in time, many different participants engage in this uh, distributed protocol of generating a curve of unknown order. And if only one of these is honest and destroys its information, then you're done, you're secure. So this is a very easy to implement trusted setup. It's updatable, meaning that let's say Ethereum has done this. Now you can start from Ethereum trusted setup and do your own trusted setup so that you accumulate the trust in the Ethereum setup and your own setup. And uh, actually, this is something that uh, I'm working on with uh, some people at uh, the Web3 Foundation. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I was going to ask if there's an NPC to produce the the yeah. curve of unknown order, but you cut ahead of me and answered it anyway. <laughs> it's great. So I think we're pretty much at time. I actually have a feeling there's plenty more we can talk about, but I do have, I have sort of one last closing question and that's so far we've talked about isogenies, like, you know, what it was and in the context of blockchain, but I'm sort of curious, like, does, does this kind of research also exist in other fields that you're aware of? Is this like a broader mathematic, I mean, it sounds like a broader mathematical topic that could be used in all sorts of things. You mean isogenies outside of cryptography? Uh, no, or? I mean isogenies outside of blockchain. To to answer your question, um, isogenies, of course, are a very fundamental mathematical object. And when we, so far, we have been talking about isogenies of elliptic curve. But of course, there's much more out there than elliptic curves. There's hyperelliptic curves, there's general abelian varieties. And even in those contexts, you can define isogenies. And there is research on the algorithmic aspects of higher genus uh, curves and their isogenies and how they can apply to uh, cryptography. We already have some uh, papers on this. It seems much more complicated. We know much less on these higher genus isogenies. So, of course, it's mostly exploratory. The same way that uh, genus to cryptography has been uh, exploratory for ECC in the past 20 years. So, in the future, we may see more things coming out of uh, more general notions of isogenies. Of course, it will always be a very fundamental topic in mathematics. And uh, isogenies are going to live, I guess, their own uh, life outside of blockchains because post-quantum crypto is now a fundamental topic in and out of blockchain. And uh, uh, we can hope to see delay properties used for something else than blockchains. And on that space, isogenies seem to be a very powerful tool because you can combine this isogeny-based delay with this pairing-based verification. And pairings are so powerful that maybe you can do more than just VDFs. Actually, we know you can do more than just VDFs. We already have some examples. Cool. If people want to find out more, where do they find you or your work? I guess people can follow me on Twitter, Luca underscore DeFeo. Uh, I have a webpage uh, where they can find the links to uh, my papers. 
Um, I would recommend uh, people who are interested in post-quantum crypto to visit Psyche.org, so S-I-K-E.org, which is the official website for uh, the post-quantum candidate, where they can find more information on uh, isogeny-based uh, or other isogeny-based protocols. Um, some colleagues have been uh, registering domains. I think there is an isogenies.org domain. I must check. Uh, and uh, that's also a very good source of information. We'll add those to the show notes. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's been enlightening, um, and I hope it has been for our listeners too. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.